Well, as you can see up here, it says in Proverbs 18:19 that a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And boy, oh boy, if that isn't true. <laughs> Two decades before his departure from Haran and Uncle Laban, Jacob had offended his brother Esau. With the assistance of his mother, Rebecca, uh, Jacob had successfully deceived his father, Isaac, into giving him the patriarchal blessing, which Isaac had intended to give to Esau. That was back in Genesis chapter 27. Although Isaac was wrong, the father was wrong in planning to give the blessing to Esau when God had made it very clear that it belonged to who? to the younger brother, to Jacob. Yet, Jacob, and we discussed this when we studied chapter 27, Jacob was just as wrong in deceiving and lying to get that blessing. When the deception was discovered, Esau had become so... Oops. No. Well, I'm missing the picture of angry Esau. There's supposed to be a picture of angry Esau up here. He was so angry that uh, his only comfort, his only mental comfort came from his thoughts about murdering Jacob. That was in verses 41 and 42 of chapter 27. That's how he got comfort for himself, planning how he would win and how he would murder his brother who had uh, taken his blessing. So it was, in fact, that vengeful hatred of his elder twin brother which had sent Jacob fleeing to Haran and to his uncle Laban. He had fled from, and this is something, isn't it? He had fled from Esau to Laban. How would you like that choice? Of course, he didn't know about Laban at that point in time, but he found out. And now, after 20 years and a a narrow escape from Laban, which was only due to the grace of God, he had just fled from Laban. And now, who is he going to encounter? It was imminent that he'd have to encounter his brother. So isn't that something? Man, he went from Esau, angry, murderous-minded Esau, to Laban. And now, 20 years later, he's going from Laban back to Esau. Remember, Rebecca, his mother, had told him um, that she would notify him when Esau cooled down so that he could return home. And she said, well, you know, a few days was what she thought. But we find that she had never, ever sent that message. So as far as Jacob knew, his brother still had every intention of seeking vengeance on him. So Jacob's past was about to catch up with him. He could not go back to Haran. Why? Right, he had made a covenant, he'd made an agreement with Laban that he would not. And besides that, he had no desire to go back to Haran and Uncle Laban, did he? Plus, who had told him it was time to pick up and go on home? God had told him. So, for Jacob, there was no choice. You know, he couldn't turn back. He he couldn't go back to to where he'd been in Haran. He had to face Esau. I mean, he could go to the left or the right. He didn't have to go south. But that would not be obeying God. God said to go home. (coughs) No, I'll be fine in a minute. So if ever anyone had jumped out of, how do they say that? Jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. It was Jacob in his situations with Laban and Esau. 
And also we could say if ever there was a man who illustrated the truth about being between a rock and a hard place, it was Laban. Don't you like some of those little sayings, those cliches, because they, they so graphically describe at least his situation here. <clears throat> well, chapters 32 and 33, which we come to in our study, now, next, they center on this meeting between the two brothers, between the two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, after they have been separated from each other for 20 years. Chapter 32, which we're going to begin with today's study, and I have entitled it, you'll see in a minute when I put the outline up here, Oh Brother. <laughs> That's the title, Oh Brother. It primarily covers the preparation for this meeting. So chapter 32 is the preparation for the meeting. And then when we get into chapter 33, we're going to actually discuss their actual meeting. The the meeting and the reconciliation which takes place. So as we look at today, verses 1 to 21 of chapter 32... We have um, five outline divisions. We're going to be looking at the angelic protection, which uh, Jacob sees before their meeting. Then we're going to look at some advanced preliminaries prior to their meeting. Everything centers on their coming meeting between, you know, Jacob and Esau. Thirdly, we're going to look at um, some apprehensive preparation that Jacob does before their meeting, and then an appropriate prayer, which Jacob prays before he meets with Esau. And finally, we'll look at some ample provisions, some gifts that he sends ahead also before their meeting. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 and 2, the angelic protection. Chapter 32, verses 1 and 2, it says, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim. I always have to try to put the accent on the right syllable. Now, the Lord God, of course knows everything. So he knew the tension and the strain on Jacob, who with one enemy behind him, now had to face an even more powerful enemy before him. And Esau, we're going to see, was much more powerful than Laban had been. Over the years, Jacob had probably received word that his brother Esau had grown very powerful, and he even now ruled over an entire country, which was named after him. Anybody know the name of that country? You can look at the end of verse 3. Right, Edom. That was, remember, that was Esau's nickname. What did it mean? Red. Remember when Esau was born, he was red and hairy. So the country was named after him. So he had become a very powerful ruler. But God was with Jacob. He will never leave him nor forsake him. He was with Jacob just as he had been with him all along. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 God's promise to Jacob back at Bethel to not only be with Jacob wherever he went, but also to keep him, you know, to protect him, and bring him back safely again to his father's house, that promise had not changed, had it? God always fulfills his promises. And he also, God, aren't you glad he understands our weaknesses? 
He always fulfills his promises, and he always understands our weaknesses. The Lord was also well aware of the fact that Jacob had great fear of his brother. He knew that, and I think this fear, a lot of it came not only from Esau's strength, and his power. Remember, he was a cunning hunter. He was a powerful man. But I think a lot of Jacob's fear came also from the fact that he had a guilty conscience for the way that he had wrongly deceived his brother. And he had a fear, of course, of revenge. So as Jacob went on south, you know, he was traveling south. He had left Haran up in Upper Mesopotamia. He's on his way home. So he's heading south. In obedience to God's command, the Lord opened Jacob's eyes. And apparently, it doesn't say, but apparently he only opened Jacob's eyes. Nobody else saw what Jacob saw. And what is it that he saw? He saw a host or an army of angels, holy angels, who had come forth at God's command to meet him. Isn't that wonderful? A host of holy angels to meet him. Yeah, wouldn't you like to see that? I would like to see that. I'd like to just see my one guardian angel. (laughs) Maybe I have more than one. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I need a lot. So anyway, these angels were obviously sent from God to protect Jacob and his family, his, his large caravan. Now, it's interesting to recall that the last time, the last time that Jacob had a vision of angels, the angels of God, was in where? All right, was back in Bethel in chapter 28, verse 12. And there, remember, there was he had the, the dream of the ladder, and angels were ascending and descending on the, on the ladder. He was on his way out from the promised land. He hadn't left the promised land, but the next day he would. So he was on his way out of the promised land. Now this second vision that he gets of God's holy angels um, finds him on his way where? Back into. He has just come back into the promised land. So at Bethel, the vision of the angelic host... Um, remember, filled Jacob with awe over the presence of God. Remember, he said, um, what did he say? He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. He was just overwhelmed with the presence of God. This second vision of angels was given in order to encourage him with regard to the protection of God, the power and the protection of God. As with the former occasion back in Bethel, Jacob felt that he needed to give a name to this place where he saw God's angelic host. And so he named it Mahaneum. Mahaneum. Let me have to say that over and over. Mahaneum. And that word in the Hebrew means two hosts or two camps. And I thought it's interesting. You know, we should do this. Whenever we have a special revelation from the Lord, like Lisa had, you know, we should name, we should do more naming. They always did that in the Old Testament, name certain places and uh, events in their lives. And they named them significant names. And I thought, well, I need to be doing that, giving little important names to uh, important events in my life. So it means two camps or two hosts. God, in his loving grace, had sent an army of angels to protect Jacob as he journeyed 
through, uh, in and through the promised land. In essence here, what Jacob is really proclaiming by that name, Mahanaim, was this is God's army. I now not only have my own camp, that's camp number one, but I also have God's camp. You know, God's camp of warrior angels. So he had two camps, his camp and God's camp. Now, angels in the script, and who, by the way, this is a trivia question. Who else had his eyes open to see a host of angelic warriors? So, yes, Elisha. And remember what he did? He prayed that his servant would have his eyes open because his servant was very fearful because the Syrians were on their way with their chariots and and they were on their way to um, defeat Israel. And so his, I think his name was Gehazi, was very fearful. So Elisha prayed and asked his eyes to be open and they were and he could see all the angelic hosts standing there um, waiting to be at their call. And then... uh, What's interesting is to compare Elisha and Jacob. I won't get into all that right now, but Elisha was totally fearless. Jacob, we'll see, was very fearful even after seeing the angelic host. And I think, again, the difference is because Elisha knew he had done nothing wrong. He was, he was totally innocent. But Jacob, has a lot, a lot of his fear, I think, is because he was guilty. He was guilty of having offended his brother. But we'll get more into that. Now, angels in Scripture are real. They are definitely real. And they are very powerful. One angel in the Old Testament smote 185,000 Assyrians, I believe it was. They're very, very powerful. And they are sent by the Lord to minister to his people. So when they tell you you have a guardian angel or angels all about you, I mean, I always pray that the angels will protect my children. That's biblical. That's, that's true. The scripture teaches that, that they are sent to minister to God's people. In fact, even though they are not visible to us under normal circumstances, they have probably been seen more often than we realize. And I believe that with all of my heart. Now, one of the wonderful biblical truths which we can gain from this episode in Jacob's life is that God is always there when we need him, whether we realize it or not. If you belong to him, he is always there. Just because we can't visibly see or audibly hear him does not mean that he has forsaken us. Again, we go to one of his promises. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We see God and we hear God how? How do we see and hear him? What we're doing this morning? Through his word. And also in the words and works of his son, which are, again, well, they're given to us in his word. Furthermore, he often, you'll find this to be true in your Christian life, God often provides special advance help when there is a special trial ahead. Now, we may not know that that trial is around the corner, but he does. And so often in the scripture, we find that he gives extra special, sometimes miraculous advance help when he knows that there is a very special trial coming. The dream, for example, of the ladder helped Jacob through his 20 long years in Haran with his uncle who became his father-in-law, Laban. 
Uh, he could always remember back to Bethel. Don't you think that's what he was always doing? Remembering that God had promised he would bring him back one day, that he would keep him, that he, his seed would multiply, and that he'd bring him back safely. He was always remembering that. that. I'm th- I think that's what helped get him through. Also, if you think about um, God, when remember back about three years ago, I don't know, maybe it was two years ago, when we studied Abraham and uh, his experience with Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, God had sent Melchizedek, the king of Salem, to Abraham to inspire and encourage Abraham's heart before he met with the king of Sodom, the wicked king of Sodom, who came to tempt him. He wanted to tempt him to exchange the spiritual for the material. And, I mean, you can go through the Bible and you can see example of this, one example after another. But God performed the, uh, the miracles of the ten plagues in Egypt. And then remember the, the wonderful miracle of opening up the Red Sea. Not only did he do that to save, to deliver Israel, but to serve Israel as a reminder of his power and his protection during her... Um, Years of moving on to the promised land. Well, she didn't do too well, so you know she had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But she had all those things to remember and remind her of God's protection and God's power. The truth really to realize, I have a picture of the opening of the Red Sea there. The truth to realize is that God provides us with what we need when we need it, so that we can be prepared in advance for coming trials. However, on our part, we need to appropriate that provision. You know, Jacob saw the angelic army that was there to protect him. Uh, so he, what he needed to do was to appropriate godly confidence as he went forth to meet his brother, knowing that you know God's army was right there and God was with him. Abraham properly appropriated the blessing and the spiritual encouragement of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, so that he successfully handled the temptation, the encounter that he had with the evil king of Sodom. On the other hand, go back to Israel, she did not fare too well in appropriating the advance preparation that God had given to her, you know, when he opened the Red Sea, because she very quickly seemed to forget the presence and the power and the protection of her God. And therefore, she handled her trials in the wilderness very poorly, didn't she? Well, besides appropriating the advanced provision of God for coming tests and trials, we should also be doing all we can. Oh, there's that angry picture of, (laughs) there he is, there's angry Esau. (laughs) How did he get in there? All right, here we go. (laughs) So we we should be doing, you know, besides God doing his part and giving us that extra grace, and provision when we need it. We need to be doing our part as well. During times of peace and safety, we need to be preparing for trouble that lies ahead. Do you think there's trouble that lies ahead? (laughs) You're either just coming out of a trial or you're about to go into a trial, I can guarantee you. Now, of course, the unsaved individual needs to take care of the most important trial of all, which is death. Well, I'm thinking of death. 
and he needs to take care of it, of course, by salvation. He needs to realize his desperate, lost condition without the Lord Jesus Christ. So he needs to cry out in repentance for salvation. Those of us who are already saved, we need to be daily preparing ourselves for the spiritual battles that we all encounter against the world, against the devil, uh, against the weakness of our own flesh, and, of course, against any number of Labans and Esau's which we will encounter along the way. We need to be spending time in God's Word. You all know that, right? That's why you are here. That's why you're so faithful to do your homework, right? And dig into it for yourselves. We need to spend time with the Lord in prayer. These are, this, these are ways that uh, we prepare ourselves for what's coming ahead. These are our weapons of warfare. Just because God is gracious to provide us with extra grace and with special help during or ahead of trials and even during trials, that does not minimize our responsibility to do all we can to prepare ourselves as much as possible as well. So God allowed Jacob to see the good news before he then heard the bad news. Esau was coming, and he was coming with an army of 400 men. So let's look at what Jacob did by way of advanced preliminaries. Let me get my outline. Oops. We're going to move on to part two. I'll get it. Advanced preliminaries, and under this section we're going to look, first of all, at Jacob's message to Esau, and then we're going to see Esau's quote-unquote message to Jacob. Being obedient to God by returning to Canaan, the place of spiritual blessing, meant for Jacob meeting with Esau. Sometimes obedience means that we have to uh, deal with things of our past. For all of his 20 years in Haran, Jacob lived with the knowledge that the reason he was there in the first place was um, because of his own sin, which had alienated his brother. So the time had now come for Jacob to deal with that situation with his brother. He could no longer keep Esau on the back burner. And the same principle applies to us in our lives as well. If, like Jacob, we are going to attempt to be fully obedient to God and to enter into our spiritual inheritance, then we need to come to terms with certain things that we have done wrong in the past. And none of us like doing this, but if we want the blessings, we need to be obedient in all areas. We must attempt where possible and as best as possible to make things right. And this is particularly true when it comes to relationships and dealing with past mistakes where we have hurt or offended or alienated someone. You know, whether we did that intentionally or unintentionally. Because we live in such a selfish world and because the carnal nature... Of, of man, of our bodies, of our flesh, is so self-centered, reconciliation is rare. It's a dying art. Think about marriages. Once they've split, how many are reconciled? You know, we find that even as believers, 
we want the other person to come to us rather than we go to them, right? Well, if he or she would just come to me, I'd be ready and willing to forgive them. But they got to take the first step. Well, in the chapters which come before us now, in the life of Jacob, we really can learn a lot about the steps to reconciliation with someone we have purposely or even not purposely hurt or offended in the past. Actually, as believers, if you will look over at Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Actually, let's read those because this is important. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. He said, and and you know these verses, verse 23, Matthew 5, Jesus said, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, if you're going to go and worship, if you want to worship the Lord, bring thy gift to the altar, (laughs) and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and worship. Then come and offer thy gift. That's to us, isn't it? As believers, we are always obligated by the word of God to take the initiative and to go to the person and seek reconciliation. And the brother there can be anybody does not have to be a brother in Christ, anybody that we have offended. They, they may refuse our efforts, right? We find that that is often the case, but it is our obligation to try. Jacob is really to be commended here in this area because he faced his obligation to seek reconciliation with Esau head on. He knew he had to do it and he did it. Although he was very fearful of his powerful elder brother, even after seeing that angelic host of angels protecting him, he was still fearful, yet he made the first move toward reconciliation by sending an advance message to Esau. So let's look at the advance message to Esau, verses 3 to 5. And Jacob sent messengers, go back to chapter 32 in Genesis, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace... In thy sight. The first step in seeking reconciliation with a, an offended brother is to make the first move and to do it with sincere humility. Jacob did both here. He sent forth a delegation from his camp to speak to Esau. He had obviously learned somewhere along the line that his brother now lived in the region of Canaan, which was south of the Dead Sea. I meant to make a picture of a map, but I forgot. Anyway, way down south of the Dead Sea, it's referred to in verse 3 as the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He want, Jacob sent the message, uh, sent the messengers to Esau because he wanted to know if there was any hope of reconciliation. If his brother, like him, desired peace between the two of them. 
two of them. He also wanted to send a clear message to his brother that he had changed. He wanted Esau to know that he wasn't the same man. He wasn't the same self-seeking, deceptive person that he had been 20 years earlier. Although there was still some of that old man in him, but basically he was, he was a lot different. And so Jacob gave very specific commands to his messengers as to what they were to say to Esau. First, he instructed his messengers to, um, as to how they were to address Esau. And he showed them by his example in verse 3. They were to acknowledge Esau as what? Lord. They were to refer to him as Jacob's Lord or my Lord. And they were to refer to Jacob as Esau's servant. This was, you see, this was, um, oh, that's what I'm supposed to have. This was Jacob's way of, of uh, trying to tell his brother that he was not returning to seek his rightful lordship position over Esau. You know, it had never really been the spiritual privileges of the birthright and the patriarchal blessing that Esau had cared about. Remember, he's, he's a very carnal person, Esau is. So he wasn't really interested in the spiritual privileges of those things. It was the material and the political advantages which had concerned Esau. So Jacob was attempting to communicate to, to Esau by this advance message that he was content... To regard Esau as his lord in the political and the um, material realm of things. He had no interest in claiming either Esau's physical territory or any of Esau's possessions. And this is why he told his, his servants to also tell Esau about all the wealth that he had gained while he was sojourning in Haran. Jacob was not telling his brother here about all of his wealth so that he could boast to him. You know, say, look how rich I got while I was away. That wasn't his point. He was doing it so that Esau would realize that Jacob had enough wealth of his own that he wasn't interested in taking any from from Esau. Furthermore, he wanted to convey the message that he wasn't coming back as a beggar either. You know, he wasn't coming back so he could leech off of his family. He had plenty of his own, so you know, he wasn't concerned about trying to get anything from from his brother or even for that matter from Isaac. The main reason for Jacob's message to Esau is really found at the end of verse 5. This is the crux of the matter. He wanted to find grace in Esau's eyes. He, he was not insisting on his own rights. He was asking for forgiving grace. It was a real humble plea. Had he learned a lot about humility up there in Haran? He had, and we see that here. This was very humble. He was not marching into Canaan to demand what he deserved. He was pleading for what he knew he did not deserve. And that was his brother's forgiveness. You see, Jacob's desire here was to make peace. And that's why it's very commendable. He wanted to be reconciled with his brother. So Jacob's advance message, which was given in the form of a humble request and given in a way that would let Esau know that he desired peace and reconciliation and undeserved grace and forgiveness. This was a wise move 
on Jacob's part. Ecclesiastes 10.4, as you see up here, tells us that, and remember this verse, this is a good little verse to remember, yielding pacifies great offenses. There's so much truth in that, isn't there? Just like soft answer turns away wrath, yielding pacifies great offenses. Jacob had greatly offended his brother, and now he was attempting to sincerely and humbly yield to him. He was learning that true greatness is found in the one who's willing to give up his own rights and to serve others. Well, Jacob sent his messengers off to Esau, and he must have been very surprised when those messengers returned earlier than expected. Now, I didn't look into the mileage and all that sort of thing um, from where he was and how long it would have taken him to get down to Edom. I think it was something like 90 miles, but I may be wrong, so don't write that down. But anyway, it would have taken him a lot, the messengers a lot longer to get down to Edom and then go back up to where Jacob was at Mahanaim than than what actually happened. They returned a whole lot sooner, and that must have surprised him. You see, what had happened is that Esau had already learned that his younger twin brother Jacob was on his way back to Canaan. Now, how would he have known that? I don't know. Apparently, they had quite a grapevine in those days. I imagine travelers who who would have passed Jacob's very slow-moving caravan because it was so large. You know, they moved slow. People traveling from the north to the south would have passed by him. And perhaps some of them went as far as Edom and um, told other people. Whatever happened, eventually word got to Esau's ears that his brother was on his way home. So rather than sit still... And wait to see what Jacob's intentions were. Now, see, put yourself in Esau's sandals. He didn't know what's going on either. He didn't know if if Jacob's coming back to take everything from him. He didn't know what Jacob's attitude about everything is either. So rather than sit still and wait and see, he quickly mobilized a rather formidable group of men, and he headed north to meet Jacob. So let's look now at uh, Esau's message, quote-unquote, to Jacob. In verse 6. And the reason I put message in quotes is because he doesn't really give a message. It says in verse 6, and the, and the messengers, these are Jacob's messengers, returned to Jacob saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. Uh-oh. Not sounding too good. So the message from Jacob's servants here was not very good news. Or at least Jacob jumped to the conclusion that it was not very good news. That's my greatest form of exercise, Frank says, my husband says, is jumping to conclusions. (laughs) But uh, he jumped to the conclusion that it was not very good news, and we know this, we'll look at this in a minute, um, from verses 7 and 8. He didn't take this as a good thing here. Two things bothered Jacob, and they appeared to him as ominous signs that his brother was still very hostile toward him. Those two ominous signs were the size of Esau's army and the silence of Esau's answer. Remember, he had sent a message. 
and said, I'm seeking grace. I want your forgiveness. So the two ominous signs were the size of Esau's army and the silence of Esau's answer. It would be difficult enough for Jacob to meet Esau, you know, just one-on-one. But to meet him with an army of 400 men would be absolutely terrifying. Remember now, Esau was a cunning hunter. And apparently he was quite a warrior as well because he had won himself, perhaps with that same army of 400 men, he had won himself the land of Edom. (laughs) So no wonder then that the Lord had given Jacob that advance vision of those invisible um, ange- that invisible invisible angelic army you know the lord knew that jacob would need to see them because this was a fearful thing esau was coming with 400 men it didn't look like esau was very interested in reconciliation with his brother did it i mean you'd probably jump to the same conclusion if you got that message And sometimes that happens. You know, sometimes when we attempt to reconcile matters with a spouse or with a parent, perhaps, or with a son or with a daughter, with a brother or with a sister, with an in-law, maybe, uh, (laughs) with a co-worker or uh, perhaps a fellow church member. Or a previous friend. Sometimes that person is very adamantly unwilling to even attempt to renew the relationship. They may want nothing to do with us ever again. They may claim that they've just been too hurt to forgive and to forget. They might, you know, just still be too angry or too bitter to want to make peace. And that's that's tragic and it can often lead us you know when we've gone to them to make reconciliation that can lead us oftentimes to feelings of of depression and uh, despondency to fear even and worry anxiety or to guilt however we need to remember that we are only commanded to do our part i mean that's all we can do right is our part. And Jacob did this, and he would continue to do his part even further, as we're going to see. But no matter how much he did, he couldn't do one thing. He could not make Esau forgive him, could he? You know, it's amazing to me. I shouldn't take the time to do this. But it's amazing to me how the Lord sometimes works these lessons to just really my heart because uh, I have a sister who has not talked to, won't see me, won't talk to me. <laughs> Probably a lot of you can identify. I have a brother the same way, but my sister, last night about 8 o'clock, the phone rang and it was my mother's neighbor across the street from her. My mother lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's why, you know, I don't know. I'm going to see what's happening. I might have to fly out there. If I do have to, you all get word from your leaders that we won't have Bible study unless one of you wants to teach. That'd be great. <laughs> Marilyn maybe teaches on Mormonism. Um, but I don't know at this point what's going to happen. But the woman said, this is Betty McKinney. Now, she is a born-again Christian, and I've met her when I was out there. So it's wonderful that my mom has this neighbor. And she said, I wanted to call you and tell you your mother's in the hospital. They found a tumor in her colon. And I was like, you know, it was shocking. And uh, she said, the reason I'm calling you is because your sister would not. 
she would not call you and uh, I told some of the ladies earlier last time I went out to see my mother I went with my husband and our son it was about five years ago I think and uh, my sister lives one block away she would not come over to see us and here I'm, I'm <laughs> convicted, so convicted. I have tried to reconcile with her, and she refuses. But I guess I, I, need, to, I need to keep trying. Anyway, it's just amazing to me. I was thinking, here I was studying this lesson, and then the Lord does this. So I know he's convicting me. Anyway, we need to do what we can do to reconcile with someone who we have offended, whether that's consciously or unconsciously. On my part, I'm not really sure what I did to my sister, except that I am a Christian and she's offended by that. She's a, she was offended when I witnessed to my father when he was dying. That, that very much offended her, and I guess that's what... Because I've gone to her and asked her to apologize for growing up together and beating her up and all that sort of thing, you know. <laughs> When the regular, well, I'm five foot eight and she's only four foot eleven, so you know I was always pounding. On. <laughs> what? No, I can't. I can't make her receive it. But I, I need. Maybe I need to do better. Try better. I don't know. But we need to leave the rest up to God, don't we? We need to remember that he is with us and he has promised to help us. It says in Psalm 125 too, As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. I love that. Well, not only did the size of Esau's army give Jacob a bad feeling, but it was rather eerie, you have to admit this, that he, Esau did not send Jacob's messengers back to Jacob with a message. He simply kept marching forward in silence. So if any thoughts of forgiveness and kindness were in Esau's heart, especially after having heard his brother's humble request for grace, you would think that he would have sent some kind of a message back to Jacob. But he didn't. And his silence really only served to prolong Jacob's agony and to increase his anxiety. Yet Jacob's fear, although great, and we'll see that in verse 7, his fear did not paralyze him. After his messengers returned, he immediately moved into action uh, to do what he could to provide some protection for his family and those with him. And there was little time to waste. I don't know how far north Esau was at this point, but Israel is not a very big country. And... Um, Moving with men and, and no livestock and no women and children, he could move pretty fast, so there wasn't a whole lot of time to waste. With every passing hour, Esau was getting closer and closer. So we're going to see now, third part of our outline, the apprehensive preparation by Jacob. And for this, look at verses 7 and 8. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands and said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. Even though his terror was overwhelming, and we see that when he says greatly afraid and distressed, that's amplified there. Okay, He was, he was overwhelmed with fright. Yet he was a man of action. He well realized that his retinue of men servants was no match against 
an Edomite army of 400 men. Now, of course, he must have remembered, we know he must have remembered because he'd just seen it, that invisible angelic army. But this didn't mean, you know, just because he knew they were there, this didn't mean that he was just to sit back and do nothing on his part to protect his family and his household. He knew that um, they would definitely, all of them together, would definitely need the Lord's divine protection if they were going to avoid being massacred. Or, you know, I don't know. I I still think some of his fear here is because of his own guilt. Because when I compare him to Elisha, and Elisha saw the army, he was confident. He told his, his servant, fear not, the Lord's with us. But we see Jacob's fear, and I think that goes back to guilt. But um, we also find that, uh, oh, where am I? Um, well, he prayed. We know he prayed during all of this, and we're going to look at his prayer next. He, he, he took action. He not only took action physically, but he took action spiritually because he does have a wonderful prayer. So anyway, just because the angelic host was there did not mean that he was not going to do all that he could to try to provide some protection against the quickly approaching danger. You know, God does his part. We also need to do our part. It was the custom back in those days when... Um, when a camp was threatened or endangered to divide into two divisions and that's exactly what we see Jacob did he put half of his family and half of his servants and livestock into one camp and the other in another camp and then they would establish themselves you know at some some distance apart so that while Esau you know when Esau came if he was coming to fight to do battle to destroy them to massacre them while he was fighting one camp the other camp could do what hightail it out of there escape and maybe Esau wouldn't know that that other camp even existed so he'd only wipe out the one so we find that Jacob's great fear did not cause him to freeze <clears throat> Um, mentally or physically neither did it cause him to freeze spiritually because we find next that he took his anxiety and his distress to the right source he went to the Lord in prayer the first recorded prayer by Jacob is what we look at now in verses 9 to 12 and I want to tell you this is an excellent prayer it's a very appropriate and excellent prayer it's a good model to follow for our own prayers let's look at verses 9 to 12 and Jacob said O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac the Lord which saidest unto me return unto thy country and to thy kindred and I will deal well with thee you see what he's doing right there he's reminding God of Bethel same names that God referred to himself at Bethel was, I am the God of Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. And he's, he might, you know, you know, you promised me, Lord, that you would return me to my country and that you would protect me. You would do well with me. So you're not going to have me get wiped out here, are you? Because that was your promise. Now look at verse 10. And this is wonderful. This is coming from Jacob. <laughs> I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. There you know what he's doing? He's humbling himself before the Lord, and he's thanking the Lord for all his blessings. Blessings, you know, Lord, you didn't bless me just to take all of that away from me. I came with nothing. You blessed me with so much. I have two camps now. 
You're not going to take that away. You didn't give that to me to take away, did you? Now look at verse 11. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. Meaning the mothers who protect, like, like a hen, you know, stretches out her wings and protects her biddies. That's this is a description of that. The mother with her children, protecting her children. And thou saidest, I will surely, here he's reminding him again of his promise, God's promise. Thou saidest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. God, you promised that you would multiply my descendants so that they'd be innumerable. So surely you're not going to wipe out all my seed, are you? All my children. It's reminding God of his promises. This prayer of Jacob is one of the greatest recorded for us in the Bible. And it's really amazing when we consider the uh, man who prayed it. (laughs) Because he has not exactly been a man of tremendous faith. In fact, he's been rather weak in many areas regarding his spiritual walk with the Lord. However, this prayer shows us that Jacob had learned a great deal while he was, quote unquote, in the valley with Laban. It shows us that he had a profound understanding of God's ways and um, of God's person. It also shows us that he had a much better, better understanding of himself, which is also important because he acknowledged his own unworthiness and he placed himself on God for deliverance. In verse 9, Jacob showed his earnestness here by addressing God as both Elohim, that's when you see the word G-O-D, capital G-O-D, that's Elohim, the true God of both heaven and earth, the creator God whose great power had protected both his grandfather and his father. We see him referring to God as that, Elohim, and also as Jehovah, that's where you see capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, he addressed him as Jehovah, the Lord of salvation and redemption, and the one who had faithfully kept his covenant promises. You know, Jehovah is the covenant name of God. God had kept his promises made again also to his father and his grandfather. And it was because that covenant that God had made with his grandfather and his father, because that had been passed on to him, he knew that he had a basis, you see, to ask God to protect him. God had promised, given a covenant, that he would. And so that was his basis of this prayer. He also reminded God that he, God, was the one who had told Jacob to return to his own country and to his own family. And that God had promised that he would do well by him. So, you know, he's telling God, I'm being obedient to you, to what you told me. And remember, you promised that you'd return me safely. So, do it. deliver me and then Jacob showed a lot of growth in grace well then we've already talked about but he did show a lot of growth in grace when he did admit his own unworthiness and this is probably one of the greatest recorded statements that Jacob ever made he recognized that he did not even merit the least of God's blessings or the truth that God had revealed to him do we merit even the least of God's blessings? Do we merit this wonderful book, this truth that he has given to us? No, we don't, because we're unworthy sinners. But in his grace and in his mercy and in his love, he blesses us. 
and he gives us the truth, and we shouldn't take that for granted. So Jacob was acknowledging that God, in acting with covenant-based kindness, had faithfully done all that he had promised, even though Jacob did not deserve even the slightest drop of mercy or kindness or truth or faithfulness from God. Well, at the end of verse 10, Jacob also acknowledged that all his blessings were due to God's grace. He had left Canaan, and he had passed over the Jordan River, you know, on his way to Haran, with nothing but his staff. You know, he might have had a little bit of food, but basically all he had was his staff. But God had so richly blessed him that now he had a big enough caravan that he could divide it into two camps. Now, we also must remember that no blessing is ours apart from the grace of God. When you and I pray... We, um, just like Jacob, should appeal always to the grace of God and not to our own goodness, right? We need to pray like the publican. Remember this guy in um, Luke chapter 18 who said, God, be merciful. He wouldn't even lift up his head. He knew he was so unworthy. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We need to pray like that and not like that self-righteous Pharisee who thought God would definitely answer his prayers because he was so religious and so good. We need to pray like Jacob, sincerely understanding that we are not worthy of the least of all God's mercies and of all God's blessings and of the truth, which he has so kindly and lovingly and mercifully revealed to us. Like Jacob, who was thankful to God for all that God had blessed him with, we also need to be thankful in our prayers. Not only humble, but thankful. We should thank God for all of his previous blessings before we then come into asking him for more blessings, right? And we don't do that a lot of times. We just jump right in, give me this, give me that. Oh, Lord, please bless me, da-da-da-da-da. We should always remember to thank him for the blessings that he has already bestowed upon us before petitioning him for more. That's why this is a good model for prayer here. The burden of Jacob's prayer was then presented last of all in verse 11. He cried out to God, deliver me. You know, I pray thee from the hand of my brother. Jacob knew that the problem that he had created with Esau had never been resolved. And his brother could very well still be harboring great hatred and a desire for vengeance against him. And it certainly looked like that when he's on his way with an army of 400 men. Perhaps in addition to slaying him, Esau would even slaughter his whole family, you know, so as to prevent the fulfillment of God's promises concerning the multiplication of God's seed, you know, which would um, become a great nation through whom the Redeemer, the promised seed of the woman would come. You know, maybe Esau was thinking, well, if I wipe out Jacob and all his seed, then God will have to do all of those promises through me because I'm the only child left of my father. Jacob knew that his prayer, you see, and this is so important for us when we pray, he knew that his prayer was in line with God's will. Isn't that important for us when we're praying? God isn't going to answer something that goes contrary to his will. We need to line up our prayers with God's will. 
And he knew that these promises concerning his descendants um, were promises that came from God. And so he reminded the Lord, not that the Lord forgets, but the Lord likes to hear us claim his promises. So twice in his prayer, they're almost like bookends, twice in his prayer, at the beginning and at the end, Jacob pleaded God's own promises in seeking God's help concerning Esau. So promises surround his petition. That's a good way to pray, isn't it? You know, Lord, you said you'd never leave me nor forsake me. Start out with a promise, and then when you close up, end with another promise. That's good. You and I always, always stand on firm ground in our prayers when we plead God's own promises. And that's why it's so important to know God's promises, right? You can't plead them if you don't know what they are. It's also important to be able to distinguish the promises that are for us. Because some of those promises were for Israel. And we can't claim them. They were for Israel. We can claim the ones that were for the church. For us, okay, and we need to know the distinction. Yet, of course, and some are generalizations, you know, like train up a child in the way he should go; when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's a generalization. Doesn't it's not always true. You can claim it to a certain degree, but you can't cling to it. And that's another story. But anyway, yet of course, <laughs> like us, Jacob was human. Are you human? Uh, do you have a carnal nature? Yes. I do too. I know I do. And even knowing God's promises and even knowing, um, you know, about God's protective angelic hosts surrounding him and having experienced God's protection in the past did not prevent him from being fearful. And some, many of the commentators actually have criticized Jacob's fear here as a weakness in his faith. And I have to admit there is some truth in that. That he, you know, if he had been a, a perfect believer, he wouldn't have been fearful. Elisha wasn't fearful. But again, I go back to the fact that Elisha knew he wasn't guilty. And, but to commend him, I want to commend him because so many people jump on his case here. I want to commend him that he did admit his fear. He didn't try to cover it up and act like he was something that he wasn't. Also, I want to commend him because he did take his fear to the right source. You know, and like I said, the Lord can sympathize with all of our infirmities, right? He knows our human inclination to be fearful. That's why I think it's 365 times in the Bible we're told to fear not. <laughs> now, it may have been weak faith to be fearful, but it was strong faith, I think, that took that fear to the Lord. When we take our fears to the Lord, it's not weakness, but wisdom. When a man humbles himself before God, I'm behind again, excuse me. When a man humbles himself before God, as Jacob did here, and when he pleads God's promises and acknowledges his own unworthiness, and when he confesses his own fears, and when he cries out for God's deliverance, you know what? I'm not going to criticize that man. I'm not going to do that. Even the scripture tells us in um, Psalm 56.3, what time I am afraid. Is that admitting we are going to be afraid? Yes. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. By the way, in our attempts at reconciliation, we should always take the matter to the Lord in prayer, right? 
we should bathe the situation in prayer before we, you know, go forth to make peace. So we should bathe the situation in prayer. We should remind the Lord of his own word. You know, for example, what you said in Matthew 20, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, that I shouldn't go to the altar before reconciling with my brother, Lord. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to be obedient. Remind God of his word. Then admit your own unworthiness. I do not deserve any of the least of your mercies. Thank him for the blessings of the past. And, um, and then do all that before we beseech his mercy and grace to bring about the reconciliation. I think we should also pray that the Lord would soften the heart of the one we are going to, you know, plow up the stony heart. And we need to deal with our own heart, too, don't we? Before we, we do that, before we go to that one. We need to um, take the beams out of our own eyes <laughs> before we go pointing at logs in somebody else's eye or however that goes. So... Um, Let's move right along. I'll never get out of here. Let's look at the ample provision. We're going to finish up with this, verses 13 to 21. Ample provisions. It says, And he lodged there that same night, and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau his brother. Here's the present. Two hundred she-goats and twenty he-goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milch camels with their colts, Forty kine and ten bulls, twenty she-asses and ten foals. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, Pass over before me and put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou? And whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my lord Esau. And behold, also he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third, and all that followed the droves, saying, On this manner shall ye speak unto Esau when ye find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me, and afterward I will see his face, peradventure he will accept of me. So went the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. In these verses we find that Jacob went to bed, in verse 13, and in the morning he determined that he would send a present for Esau, his brother, from all that God had so richly, you know, blessed him. And that generous gift, if you count up the animals, consisted of 580 animals, not counting the young colts of the camels, because we're not told how many young colts there were in verse 15, you know, baby camels. So it could be, you know, somewhere around 600 animals. The size... Of that gift tells us how extremely wealthy Jacob had had become due to God's blessings on him. Camels alone, he, it's, he was sending what thir, was it? Thirty camels? Yeah, uh, thirty. Yeah, thirty camels and their young. Camels alone were very very expensive. They were um, rather rare and very expensive. And uh, 
this, so this tells us a lot about his wealth. It also tells us about his sacrifice. Answers to our prayers sometimes cost us a sacrifice. If we are not willing to sacrifice to see answers to our prayers, then it demonstrates the level of our sincerity, right? If we pray, for example, to be reconciled with a brother or sister or in-law or whoever, we need to sacrifice our pride, number one, don't we? Um, If we're praying for a certain person we know perhaps to get saved, we need to be willing ourselves to to um, give, to sacrifice our time, maybe time spent with that person, talking to, becoming a friend, talking to them about the Lord. If they're not nearby, we need to sacrifice uh, time to write them letters, you know, to build a relationship first and then write them about the Lord or send them Christian literature or, or what. if nothing else, sacrifice your time in con- continually praying for them. If we pray, for example, for our missionaries, we need to be willing to do whatever we can to help them out, to sacrifice in whatever ways that we can. So to to make the best impact on Esau, Jacob, we find, had divided the animals into droves. Now, there was very little time to waste because Esau was marching on his way, so he probably sent them in five droves of like animals, you know, not having time to equally distribute all the different types of animals. So in other words, he sent all the goats in one drove, and then all the sheep, then all the camels, then all the cattle, and finally the donkeys. And he instructed his servants to drive them, not lead them. And and that's why this picture was accurate. You see how they're driving them? They're not in front of them. They're driving, they're behind the animals. So that Esau, first of all, would be impressed with the herd before then hearing from the shepherds or the messenger shepherds who would be in the back. Before hearing that those animals that he had just seen were a gift for him from who? His servant Jacob, who was each one of the shepherds leading those five droves, was then to tell Esau that Jacob was coming up behind all of them. Jacob, you see, was hoping that by the time the fifth drove of animals was presented to Esau, that Esau's anger would be appeased. And he and Jacob, who um, would come up behind that fifth drove, would then be reconciled in peace. Now, again, we find that Bible commentators are divided on the way that they, uh, that they view what Jacob did here in these verses. Some say that just as soon as Jacob finished praying, you know, that beautiful prayer, he went right back to being the old Jacob. You know, instead of leaving matters in God's hands, they say he set about on a scheme of his own devising. A scheme which was intended to pacify his brother with all these generous gifts. They criticize him also for groveling before Esau. And if we think this is bad, wait till we get to chapter 33 when he bows, he takes a few steps and bows down to him. He takes a few more steps and bows down to him and takes a few more, he does that seven times. And he's criticized by commentators um, for doing this because, uh, and for calling him his Lord, because they say that uh, this was wrong when God had made him Lord over his brother. Well, other commentators suggest, on the other hand, they suggest that 
After Jacob's prayer of verses 9 to 12, the Lord himself may have put this gift strategy into Jacob's heart. You know, in other words, it might have been the answer to Jacob's prayer. Jacob, after all, we found out in verse 13, had gone to bed. And uh, for all we know, the Lord may have inspired him with this idea while he slept. Or if he didn't sleep, maybe the Lord put it in his... If it was me, I probably wouldn't have slept that night anyway. Mr. Butler says this. He says, quote, that God would put on Jacob's mind a gift that would help appease Esau can be just as much an answer to Jacob's prayer as if God performed a miracle to stop Esau, end of quote. So I'll let you make up your minds what you think about that. If he was um, going back to old Jacob or if this was okay because this was good strategy. By sending the gifts, um, I see that Jacob wanted to convey to Esau several things. He wanted him to know that his intentions were peaceful. He was not returning... As we said before, he was not returning to Canaan in order to contend with his brother for his own, you know, his material birthright privileges. He didn't care to have anything which belonged to Esau. In fact, Esau could have a large portion of what was his. See, that's the message that he's sending. I don't want anything of of yours. You can have a big portion, and that must have been a big portion of what, what I have. By then coming up behind all of these gifts, Jacob was acknowledging that Esau had been the offended party. You know, he was the one who had offended Esau. Jacob was asking Esau to forgive him and to accept this gift offering of reconciliation. He was not, as some contend, he was not sending the gifts as a bribe, you know, but rather... I see it as an expression of his goodwill and his apology for having wronged his brother. This is good strategy, too. You know, if you've got somebody you need to reconcile with, send them um, cards and tell them you love them. Send them flowers. You know, soften up the ground before you go. (laughs) Well, rather than demanding his right. Now, what do you think would have happened if Jacob just went to Esau demanding his right? You know, God... Even when we were in our mother's womb, God told me that I would lord it over my older brother. You know, and I've got the birthright and I've got the blessing. You sold it for a pot of beans and, and, uh, you know, dad never should have given you the blessing anyway. God wanted it for me. What do you think would have happened if that was his attitude? You think there would have been reconciliation? I think there would have been war and it would not have been good. So he, he wisely went before his brother, calling him Lord and calling himself his servant. Jacob, you see, needed to show Esau, because he was guilty, he needed to show Esau that he was truly sorry. He needed to demonstrate that he was a changed man. He was no longer a scheming deceiver who did whatever was expedient to get. He was now a repentant, charitable giver. And so the lesson for us in all of this is that uh, we need to go forth to seek reconciliation when we have offended. Now, whether that's consciously or even unconsciously, sometimes we don't even know that we've offended somebody, do we? So I guess we we need to find out. (laughs) I'm sure I've offended people I don't even have a clue about. And if I've offended some of you, forgive me. Please forgive me. I know I have offended some of you. Some of you haven't come back because I've offended you. Um, 
But we need to always seek re- reconciliation. We need to do our part. We need to do as much as we possibly can. The Lord God will be with us if we follow him in this obedience step. And, of course, we have to do it with what? Love, grace, humility. As with Jacob, um, I believe the, the Lord will provide us. Um, even ministering spirits, angels, to protect and help us as we, as we obey him. Having learned that it is our duty to, to make the initial move toward reconciliation with an offended person, then, as I said, we have to do it with sincere humility. We need to do it bathed in prayer and with an attitude which is willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary, you know, other than compromising on God's word or God's ethics or morals, we need to do whatever we can to to sacrifice for the benefit of peace. God says no worship before at least attempting to make reconciliation with an offended brother.